The Buckeyes travel across the country to take on an angry Oklahoma team. Can they come home with a victory? I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports. I'm Steve Brown here with Thomas Bradley. This week we'll ask why national anthem protests in college sports have not been getting the same publicity as those in the NFL. We'll also talk to Bob Hunter, a longtime Columbus Dispatch sports writer who is retiring this week. But first, for the first time this season, the Ohio State football team will look across the line of scrimmage on Saturday and see a team as talented as they are. The Buckeyes head to Norman, Oklahoma to take on the Sooners, where the Buckeyes will actually be a slight favorite in this game. The first time Oklahoma will be a home dog in 16 years. Here now for more is Rob Aller from the Columbus Dispatch. Great to have you back on the show, Rob. Good to be here, as always. I don't know about you, but I was so excited when I saw the backup Oklahoma quarterback talking some smack about OSU. Uh, he called their defense, quote, basic, and he said that OU starting quarterback Baker Mayfield would light them up. And as I say, there's nothing better than some midweek trash talk. Social media, right? You can't get away with anything anymore, man. You, try, you say think something you think's in secret or, or whatever, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to explode, and this did, and... Uh, he'll never see the field probably, and who knows when he'll see the field next after this. Well, let's talk about that basic Ohio State defense leading the nation. Hasn't given up a touchdown. The only touchdown was on a pick six so far in the first two games. Oklahoma's got their hands full with uh, with this squad. Here's what impresses me, guys. I'm, these guys are young, but they know where they're going. I mean, it's one thing to be young and kind of come into a new stadium and be kind of thrown by that, but in the two games I've seen, they know their assignment. It's assignment football. As long as you can do that, it doesn't matter where you are or who you play. You just play your assignment, and they know exactly what they're doing. This will be the first time that they will look across the line, and they'll see guys as big as them and as fast as them. Uh, do you think there, there might be, I don't want to say intimidation, but do you think they might come back down to earth a little bit? I think that's always the issue. I don't think it's the environment. It's the town across from you. I think that uh, you know, it's real. I mean, this isn't some made-up thing that the town is pretty equal. It's you, know, you can't do the things that you've done in the first two games. So how do they react to that? And I think uh, that's the that's the mental challenge, especially for young guys. Again, crowd, forget it. I think home field advantage is overblown in college football, especially. But but that talent is. Wait a minute, this guy can run with me. This guy's as big or bigger than me. That's going to be the question. And how fast do they adjust? Oklahoma opened the season against Houston and uh, fell to Houston, former Ohio State offensive coordinator Tom Herman, now the coach down there. How much does that favor Ohio State, if any, the the relationship between Tom Herman and Ohio State head coach Urban Meyer and uh, Oklahoma's early loss? Well, I think the loss is, uh, that always puts a little doubt in your mind. That said, I think they've got, you know, they could regroup. Ohio State did it in 2014 and, and, you know, rallied after that. I think the bigger question is, is that connection between Herman and, and Meyer. And, you know, what Urban Meyer's been saying is you don't really get a lot of insight. What you get is a little bit of detail about player tendencies, which, you know, when it's a fine line to begin with, every little advantage helps. So you know what, which way a guy's going to run or how he makes his cuts or any of that kind of stuff in terms of players and detail about it, that could be the difference. 
watching this Buckeye team, I'd say the, the player I'm most surprised by would be Malik Hooker, the defensive back who has, who has uh, so many touchdowns. He has interceptions and touchdowns already galore. I, I don't know. Can you talk about Hooker or who else you might be really surprised with this year? Well, I think a Hooker, and who do I see? I see Chris Campbell. That's who I see. I see a guy that's just an incredible athlete, probably two two-way player. If, I, if I've got this right, which I do, <laughs> he was uh, player of the year in basketball, I believe. Uh, uh, so, you know, incredibly talented, confident, and we saw in that first game that uh, that chip and catch interception, what, what this guy's all about. Do, do we, uh, is there any, is there any hesitation with his play? I've seen a lot of tape on Hooker so far where he, he jumps it a little bit. He anticipates the play. Is it, have coaches, do you think, talked to him about the possibility of getting burned? His one interception against Tulsa, he, he came from out of nowhere to make that play, but it turned out to be a great play. But could there be a possibility he gets burned? Yeah, there is. But as we all know, Urban Meyer, and I think the way he coaches, it's big risk-reward. And uh, it's, worth, it's worth getting burned, hopefully not for a touchdown, but it's worth taking that risk if you can make the play. And it's all about playmakers. It's about letting guys play to their ability and their natural ability, and I think that's what we're seeing. I think they, I think they, you know, have have him uh, being careful to a point, but mostly it's just go for it and let your ability do your thing. And I think more times than not, at the end of the season, that will come out uh, on the positive side of the ledger. Rob, it sounds like you're pretty big on the Buckeyes. You you want to offer us a prediction for Saturday? Uh, okay, let's go with uh, 35-20 Buckeyes. Uh, real quick, we are talking to Bob Hunter in just a minute. Uh, your your colleague at the Columbus Dispatch who is retiring this week. Do you have a, a good Bob Hunter story you want to share? Oh, man. Hunt, is, uh, he's a classic. Uh, he's been doing it forever. Uh, a historian, but not only of, of sports, but of uh, uh, Columbus in general. I think, uh, you know, he's done a few face plants over the years, tripping on wires in uh, arenas and that type of thing. <laughs> Got a little bloody, so he's a true warrior. Uh, nothing real specific that I can share without getting him or me in trouble. Well, we'll be talking to Bob Hunter in just a little bit. We have been talking to Rob Aller from the Columbus Dispatch about Ohio State's big matchup against Oklahoma. That's in Norman Saturday night. Rob, thanks for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me. If you've read the Columbus Dispatch any time over the last 20, even 30 years, you probably know the name Bob Hunter. His columns have been on the side rail of the Columbus Dispatch for years. You've heard his name. He's covered countless Ohio State, Ohio sports. He's he's an icon when it comes to sports writing in Columbus. That's right. And sports writing in Columbus will suffer a little bit after this weekend because Bob is retiring from his full-time position with the paper. Thomas and I talked to Bob on Friday. We started by uh, asking where the idea for his rumblings column came up. The rumblings is a it's a list of several paragraphs and Bob's thoughts on different things going around. And we asked him where that idea came from. When when Dick Fenlon retired in the uh Oh, I guess 1997 or something. Um, I, I had been doing columns with him for four or five years, and um, so they did. I, I can't remember exactly how that that came about. We talked we talked about that kind of stuff for a while. Other other columnists and other places did things like that, and we 
just kind of uh, kind of came to a mutual kind of mutual understanding. And I started doing that when you know, like shortly after Dick retired. Um, and I'm still, by the way, I'm still going to do those for a while, even though I am quitting. That's one thing they wanted me to they wanted me to continue to do for a while, and I agreed um, probably till the end of the year anyway. And then I'm not sure after that. So uh, it is very popular. People do like it, you know. So. Uh, it, it's kind of lost some of its oomph in the uh, uh, kind of in the electronic age, as you know, we have Twitter and and all that kind of stuff. And so there's all this, you know, all this news is out there instantly, every day, every second. So it's, it's not quite as easy as it used to be. You mentioned the the electronic age and digital media. What? How do you feel about digital media and how it affects newspapers in general? Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I think, um, for one thing, it's kind of uh, the death of newspapers eventually. I mean, I think it. I think it is. Um, I mean, I think it's fantastic. It's like it, it's like it's like the internet and everything else. You know that um, I couldn't live without the internet these days. I find things all over that. You get news. You're going to write a. You're going to write a story, or you're going to write a column, and you. And instantly go out there and, and dig up all this material that before would have taken you days to, to find. But at the same time, um, you know, people don't need newspapers the way they used to. Now, a lot of people still like to read them and still, you know, they're still popular um, with, the, with the older crowd. But let's face it, that, you know, um, a lot of 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds are, are on Twitter and they're on the Internet and they're on their phones and they're getting all this material all the time. And newspapers are on phones and they are, um, you know, trying to respond to that. But um, it's just, you know, I would be I would be uh, lying to you if I said I didn't think, you know, it, it had a long term, you know, down effect for newspapers. As I said, though, on the other hand, it is, you know, I'm just I'm just as um, hooked on it as as you are or anybody else is. I mean, you know, the, the information's there. You can get it instantly. Um, you know, the one thing, the one thing that, um, like, like something like rumblings, for example, the one thing that keeps that popular, I think, is that not everybody has the time or the energy to, to stay on Twitter all day and just keep looking at, you know, at, at news. So even though the news is all out there, not everybody can, can, can spend all their time reading it and soaking it up and looking for it and all that. So there is still um, there is still a place for that. Do you think newspapers will be around in, in 10, 20, or 50 years? I think they I think they will be around in some form. Um, you know, maybe as websites. I think I think it's possible. I mean, I think there are people who want newspapers. I, I mean, I think there are people who like I like to read the paper. I, I mean, I I um, can get it on my iPad. I read it on my iPad sometimes, but I like to have my coffee in the morning and sit there and read the paper. Um, so I, I mean, I do think I think they will survive in some form. And and you know, we, we we're talking ten years, twenty years, fifty years. Who knows? But as as rapidly as things have changed, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean. Um, you know, will Twitter be around in 10 years? I don't know. You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. In your retirement, do you see yourself following sports 
any to any degree that you follow sports now. Obviously, you write about it daily. You you, you follow beats. You you work on sports, and it becomes a job instead of a passion. In your retirement, do you see it shifting from a job back to a passion? That's a good que- that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I I do know that one of the things that's appealing about retirement is just not going to all these games, not being so, um, you know, I mean, you, you said it, you know, all of us, you know, who were in, who were in the kind of the sports business, we all started because we love sports. And I think you, you do this for a long time and it becomes a job. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I've, I've said this to a lot of people. I said, you know, for the last 23 years, I've been kind of a prisoner to the OSU football schedule. Nothing against nothing against OSU, yeah. but every Saturday, every you know, in the fall, and there's beautiful days in the fall where you think, wow, I'm like, I'm going to go down there and spend 12 hours a day, and they're 12 hours a day watching, you know, them mangle some team that has no business being on the field with them and then i'm going to write about it and it really would be nice if you were out doing something else well um so i mean there is i mean i do think you know that's one of the appeals is getting away from it a little bit but i'm not sure you can ever i'm not sure you can ever really get away from it and i do think you know after i'm not doing it every day i'm not so immersed in it i do think it will be uh um, it will be more fun. I mean, I think it will just be more enjoyable to watch a game mm-hmm. and not and not think, you know, what's the angle here? Is there something I can, you know, something I can get about that, you know, get out of this for next Monday or Tuesday or rumblings or whatever. So yeah, I mean, there is there is that. I came into the media to be a sports. It's funny you mention this because I came into the media to be a sports writer. That's what I really wanted to do. And then I realized all you guys work nights and weekends. So I decided to go into radio. Um, 12 years ago, as I was making this journey into the media, I was given an assignment in a journalism class to interview one of my favorite journalists. And I called you. And we had never spoken before, but you, you were really gracious, and you took about 15 minutes to talk to me. Um, is that something you've always tried to do to kind of mentor the next generation of writers? I've always tried. I've always tried to be, you know, you know, helpful, friendly. I mean, that's kind of it's kind of my nature. You know, like I, I, I have jogged and walked every morning for years, and I, I always say hello to people. Like I, I think that's like something you can. I think that's a very small thing you can do to, you know maybe make somebody's day better or something, you know? So, I mean, I've, I've always tried to be um, outgoing, friendly that way. Unfortunately, like, you know, like you get into, you get into periods where you're, you're working so much and you're doing so much and you kind of like, sometimes you've got, you've got people reaching out to you and you can't always, and you, know, you can't always reach back. I mean, I try, but you know, I, I, I wish I could say every single time I did that, but um, sometimes it just, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think that's a. I think that's a good thing, and I think the. I think most of the. Uh, um, most of the guys that I work with are like that. I mean, I think we've tried. Um, things are things are changing so rapidly in this business, and I'm not sure. Um, you know, the young, the young writers coming up, um, are kind of in a totally different world than we are a lot of times. So it's you know. Um, but I think a lot. I think a lot of them still kind of look. You know, they would still like to do what we're doing, even though they they know maybe they're not going to make a career doing what we're doing, just because of the change in the business. 
Bob Hunter, longtime sports columnist for the Columbus Dispatch, retiring this weekend, although he will continue writing that popular rumblings column until at least the end of the year. Bob, it's good to hear you will continue doing that for at least a few months, the next few months. And, and when you're gone, it will really be a lesser Columbus media market without you. And we wish you the best. I appreciate that. Thanks a whole lot. Professional football players have been making headlines for sitting, kneeling, or holding their fists in the air during the national anthem in recent weeks. It's a show of solidarity with San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who has been kneeling during the anthem to protest the treatment of minorities by police. But college protests haven't been getting the same publicity. Here to talk about the history of college athletes and social justice protests is Doug Hartman. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota who has written about social justice movements in sports. Good to have you back on the program, Doug. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. So are social justice protests as prevalent in college sports as they are in the pros? Well, they're definitely not getting the same level of publicity, but I think it's kind of an open question about the extent to which such demonstrations and protests and shows of solidarity are, are ongoing. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't been able to track it systematically yet. I mean, this is all just unfolding, but, you know, just in my kind of personal little Twitter feed and stuff, I got so many... Um, photos of college athletes for sure, but also high school athletes, sometimes entire teams taking some kind of show of solidarity, whether it's a knee or something else. But definitely we haven't, so I don't, definitely we haven't gotten the media attention on that to the extent that the NFL um, has kind of almost taken that over. And why is that? Is, is that because some of the shows of solidarity, I've seen West Virginia's women's volleyball team taking a knee during the national anthem. I've seen uh, other small schools, even at Ohio State's game versus Tulsa last Saturday, there were apparently some shows of solidarity, some uh, subtle protests during the national anthem. Is that because it's these smaller sports and not a name like Colin Kaepernick? I think that's probably part of it. Uh, my guess is colleges and universities themselves, whether it's administrators or athletic directors, maybe even coaches, um, aren't super keen on kind of calling a lot of attention to themselves and getting swept up in the larger um, larger issues and controversies like we've seen are swirling around Kaepernick. I think athletic folks tend to be kind of cautious, if not conservative, on these kinds of issues, and so uh, probably aren't doing a lot to promote them, and in fact, in a lot of ways, probably trying to downplay them. And college athletes are, at least presumably, a little more vulnerable to the influences of coaches and and others around them. They don't have the, the they're not as empowered as pro athletes. Boy, that's an understatement. Yeah, they. I think they're very reliant on their coaches. You know, these are often younger kids. Uh, kind of, I mean, they have their own ideas and stuff, but they're very susceptible uh, to coaches. I think maybe even more so some of the tangible stuff about, uh, you know, their playing time depends upon this, even their scholarships. Um, so I think they are uh, very much um, following the lead of what their coaches are saying. I mean, also, I think one thing we should also remember here is this is very early in the season uh, for college sports, even very earlier in the academic calendar year. So they've been focused just on probably getting back into school, getting their sports going. Um, my guess is a lot of them really kind of aren't fully engaged um, with what's going on in the rest of the world and, and prepared to uh, step up on that. I've got, I talked to a football player here at Minnesota and kind of asked him about that. And 
it was almost a surprise to him uh, just because he's been so immersed in the first week of classes and and getting the getting the team you know getting his own his own position and playing time going um and they're just not kind of ready or uh to to jump in just at this point maybe not even fully aware of the nfl controversy that's surrounding everything historically social change movements have started at universities and have been uh, on these college campuses where like-minded individuals get together. And it seems like while a lot of this movement sparked out of other movements, this one didn't, and it, it could be a while to catch up. Do you see it gaining momentum on college universities, or is this something that's going to be restricted to professional sports, this little facet of the overall movement? Well, I, I completely um, agree with your characterization of a larger movement. Um, in fact, I think you know, when we're talking about Kaepernick's uh, gestures and the controversies around it, that's just one piece of a much larger uh, kind of um, cultural shift among athletes and athletic folks of emerging social consciousness and, and, and protest and demonstrations around that. So I put this, I mean, I, I actually think college sports is is been already a big part of that. I think the most prominent example of that was the Missouri, uh, you know, the threatened Missouri boy football boycott last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely, you know, that was a college campus thing through and through. And, and I still think that's um, an unprecedented moment in that it wasn't just a symbolic show of support for racial issues or social concerns, but a very tangible um, attempt to leverage the power of athlete, the athletic platform against the economic interests and the school spirit and state interests of, of playing a game. So I still see, I think college, college sports, college campuses are, are going to continue to be an incubator of this. I think um, administrators are going to be, and athletic directors are going to be very aware of that. I think it's not accidental that Missouri that put clauses in their new football coaches' contracts, contract about student-athletes and about public, public statements. Um, so I, I absolutely think college campuses are key here. And, and college campuses, not just the sports scene, but are just the source of so much incubation of social ferment and consciousness right now. Um, we're, on camp, you know, we're all on campuses, and you see it every day in the activities of, of student organizations and, and um, uh, groups. This is the first time we've seen this larger movement use the national anthem and the symbol of the flag and patriotism, and it's really struck a nerve with people. Is is this the first time we're seeing something like this happen, or is there historical precedence to what Colin Kaepernick has started? Well, I mean, to me, the obvious historical precedence for Kaepernick's particular demonstration goes back to 1968 and Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the victory stand in Mexico City. Context is slightly different in that that was the Olympic Games and international arena, uh, but their display was at the moment of the national anthem and the raising of the flag, and they raised their fists and and looked down in a gesture that was quite clearly um, rejection of the ceremony um, and some of the symbols and meanings attached to it. So I see Kaepernick in that tradition. Um, There's been kind of sporadic or or ephemeral versions of that over the years. A couple athletes in the 90s at different times have done – um, kind of, you know, refuse to stand for the anthem or this or that. Um, but that's always been kind of individual and kind of, uh, I would say, um, you know, kind of ephemeral. It faded away. We've never seen 
I think this level of attention and 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 I think there's to me two things going on there. I mean, I think Kaepernick has been quite masterful and in his explanation of it and his consistency and firmness with staying true to his message and initial ideas about it. And then that has picked up steam so that we've seen athletes in a variety of levels in different sports um, with, simil- with similar or related gestures of solidarity. So, so that larger kind of movement, I do. I mean, I think it's not brand new, but I do think there's kind of a critical mass here that's happening that, that seems to me historically uh, unique. Doug Hartman is a professor at the University of Minnesota who has written extensively about social justice movements in sports. We've been talking about the recent national anthem protests and how they have or have not bled down to college sports. Mr. Hartman, thanks again. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And we'll have to stay in touch on this because this whole movement, I think, is going to continue to unfold in the year ahead. Certainly. Thanks again. State football fans know Urban Meyer. They know who he is. He's the face of the program. But he came to Ohio State. I don't want to say Meyer did controversy, but it was a, a pretty unique situation. He came because he left Florida after a mental health and a physical health scare. He had overexerted himself. He had a heart condition. And a lot of people had criticized him saying he wanted to get out of his contract at Florida because of this so he could move to Ohio State. Well, that's that's not exactly the case. He He did have health issues. He had legitimate health issues, including heart issues. He was also just stressed out. He was, you know, kind of strung out on football. And he has, he's talked about it openly, but he hasn't talked about it really in depth. And that's until this week in a new piece called I'm Not the Lone Wolf in Bleacher Report magazine. And we spoke with the writer of that piece, Brandon Sneed. Brandon, I guess this is a big question. What what did you learn most about head football coaches in college. I, I didn't know that the demands on them were quite as much as this, but what, what did you learn uh, the most, do you think? What really struck me was, you know, just how human they are while at the same time trying to do this impossible thing, <laughs> which is when, you know, games, especially on the level of Urban Meyer, I mean, win games, and in a way that requires them to work so hard. I mean, it's just endless, the work and the things you can find to worry about and focus on it's just uh it just seems really overwhelming and i don't know i just had a newfound respect for him urban meyer's break from football after leaving florida and then moving to ohio state is well documented it's well known here in columbus uh he had health issues are there a lot of stories like this out there that maybe aren't as publicized where these coaches are just working round the clock demanding superhuman things from their assistant coaches, demanding superhuman things from themselves that maybe the general public just doesn't see. Can you shed some light into the life of a of a football coach at an elite D1 school? Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. Uh, I mean, Urban told me about several well-known coaches uh, whose names I'm not at liberty to share right now who, who reached out to him after his story uh, came out because he mentioned this brief, very briefly a couple of years ago. And so he got some phone calls from several people whose names people would recognize saying, I went through something, the same thing that nobody knows about. I'm still trying to figure out what was going on and how to deal with it. So, yeah, I think it's exceedingly common, um, almost to a frightening degree uh, that, and yeah, it's just something I think people would, would do well to be aware of. 
Brandon Sneed is a freelance writer who wrote a piece about Ohio State head football coach Urban Meyer and his health for Bleacher Report magazine. He's also written a new book called Head in the Game about the brains of athletes. That's due out early next year. Brandon Sneed, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can find an archive of earlier episodes using the WOSU Public Media mobile app. You can also follow us on Twitter at After the Score. Until next week, I'm Thomas Bradley. And I'm Steve Brown.